0: There we go. Excellent. We are in um, the book of Philippians. It's a series that we've entitled uh, Joy in Hard Places. Um, It's a great book that Paul has uh, written to the Philippian church or the church in Philippi, a Roman colony, about uh, roughly 2,000 years ago. And uh, we're into our third message here from Philippians. And um, I was just thinking about this. Uh, It's amazing what happens when something really grips us, isn't it? Uh, It's amazing how it can sort of really take us over. Like when a drive or passion takes a hold of us, it really begins to shape what we do and how we do it and uh, the energy we use to do it with as well. Uh, Take, for instance, the planning of a holiday. It's amazing when that becomes a bit of a drive or a passion within somebody to plan a holiday. You get this idea. It begins to consume your waking moments and sometimes even your sleeping moments as you're thinking about a holiday and whatnot, Because you're planning out an itinerary, places to see, places to meet, uh, places to eat. And uh, you research all sorts of things and it's like this sort of drive or this passion sort of comes within you to sort of follow this through. And just what is this? It just you know, it drives you. Well, we're going to see like a passion or a drive today in uh, Paul as he talks to the Philippians here in the uh, last part of this um well, the middle part is first chapter. So, open your Bibles up with me. It'll be on the screen as well. If uh, if you haven't brought a Bible, we we would encourage you there to bring a Bible. And if you haven't got a Bible, please uh, come and see me, and we'd be happy here at Exchange to get you a Bible free of charge. If you have got your Bibles, I go to verse twelve in chapter one, and we'll just uh, read from there down to verse eighteen. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defence of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Uh, Father, thank you today that we can come and gather around your word. We ask and pray now that Holy Spirit, you would come and uh, give us a blessing of new mercies this morning upon this word. We pray now that you would open up our eyes. And uh, open up our heart to see the passion and the drive of Paul here in the proclaiming of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to see that today. Help us, Holy Spirit, to see that this uh, was a drive and a passion in Paul's life as he began to see exactly who Jesus is. And this became the central focus in his life. So pray, help us today to see that as we explore that word now. And we pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Paul, as we know, is in the... He's in a, uh, from Philippians, he's in a Roman prison cell. And we get even a mention of it here today where he says he's imprisoned. It says in verse 13 there, he's confined with the imperial guard. He's confined with the imperial guard. Just who are the imperial guard here that uh, Paul is referring to in Philippians? Uh, the Imperial Guard are the elite of Roman soldiers. They are the best of the best. You might call them the, is it the SAS, of the uh, Special Armed Services that Australia has? Uh, they are the highest paid, and therefore, because money talks, they're the most loyal to Caesar. Uh, they were his special guard in case of attack or assassination, attack, which was uh, fairly regular in Roman times. Um, they easily got bumped off. So these Caesars would put in place here, yeah, this like the elite, uh, this Roman guard. Uh, There was about 9,000 of this Imperial Guard, these elite soldiers, and they were absolutely committed to protecting Caesar. He really made sure that no one uh, could get through to him. And Paul's imprisonment, though, was no ordinary imprisonment here with this Imperial Guard. Paul was chained, so 24 hours a day, to one of these elite Roman guards. Uh, Whether it was shackled by the the ankle or shackled by the wrist, he was actually chained... Uh, to these Roman guards, or a Roman guard, 24 hours a day. They'd probably come in two-hour shifts or something like that. Uh, Uncouple off one guard and stick it on the next guard, and that's how Paul uh, was at that time. didn't matter what Paul was doing or where he was, he literally had someone right alongside him the whole time. If Paul wanted to go to the toilet, along comes the Roman guard with him. If Paul wanted to go to sleep, the Roman guard was right there with him. If Paul wanted to go eat, the Roman guard was right there with him. Now, uh, if any visitors came to Paul, the Roman guard was right there with him in the whole time. They never left his side for this whole time. For Paul, there was no privacy whatsoever with this uh, imperial guard that he was part of. Now, you may ask, why have I made such a point here about this imprisonment and about Paul here being chained to these guys? I think it really helps us sometimes, in some respects, just see a little bit more what's happening behind the scenes to get an appreciation for why Paul wrote what he wrote here to the Philippians. It's really quite possible that the Philippians were confused about Paul's imprisonment. Maybe they just couldn't get it. They may have thought that the mission of the gospel that Paul was such a champion of has come to a standstill. He's our champion of the gospel. He's actually chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day and this is going nowhere. They're probably getting very confused thinking we had some real momentum building up here in the gospel going around the Mediterranean Sea and the Roman world. But now it's sort of stopped in this Roman prison. And just maybe they're thinking, what the heck is going on? We thought we really were going places with this gospel, and now it's seemingly stopped. Now, I get all that from verse 12 because Paul kicks off there in verse 12 and says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's like Paul's reassuring them here that his being in prison hasn't stopped the mission of the gospel. The gospel really is unstoppable, and particularly for Paul, here we see it's a passion of his. He's saying, listen, guys, really, what has happened here is that God has used my imprisonment to advance the gospel. Don't worry, nothing is wasted here in God's economy, he's telling the Philippians. God doesn't waste a situational circumstance in our lives. Even here, he says, the gospel is advancing. And for me, as I read that and think about that and see that what Paul's saying, it begins to set this passage up for me to help me to see what Paul's thinking here and what he's perhaps communicating. Paul has a deep passion and an uncompromised drive to proclaim Christ wherever. Paul has discovered in Christ the salvation that he's always longed for or looked for. And not only that, Paul's discovered that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And this has now taken a hold of him. He sees Jesus as the treasure of his life, the supreme treasure of his life. And he ends there at verse 18, and he says this, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, Paul says, I rejoice. So you get a, I think there you're beginning to get a picture here of this centrality of Jesus and the gospel so that it takes first and foremost place in the life of Paul. And that's what I want us to see today is so we just go through this passage here to see this, uh, this gospel passion, this gospel drive that is really so strong in the life of Paul that it's uh, really gripped his life. So we want to see the gospel is central. To see that, though, it's really, really important that we see the Bible as one story. It's really important we see the Bible as one story here to get a picture that the gospel is central and that that story is all about the salvation that Jesus Christ brings to us as we think about this one story of the Bible. The gospel is the central story of the Bible, and that's exactly how Paul saw it. Unfortunately, often we can look at the Bible as a whole bunch of unrelated stories, We've all seen stories here of Noah's Ark and Jonah the whale and David and Goliath and Gideon and the fleece. And we, we sort of see them all and they're unrelated in a sense if we don't see the Bible as one grand story. Sometimes we'll see the story of Noah's Ark and we'll take away the principle there, don't listen to negative talk. Because you might think that because you know, Noah's building this ark way out in the middle of a desert, so to speak, or dry land and he's getting all this negative talk. So why are you building this ark for, Noah? And he just keeps building. And you might think, well, you know, don't listen to negative talk. That's not what the Bible is actually communicating there in Noah's Ark. All the same in uh, David and Goliath. Now you get this picture here of you know, you've got to be able to face the giants in life. And that's true, you've got to be able to do that. But that's not really what's happening in that story there. They're not unrelated stories. They're all pictures of God's salvation being worked out through the pages of Scripture in this one grand story. And this one story, the main feature is about God's rescue of a rebellious mankind through Jesus Christ, his son. The first two chapters of Genesis open up with a world that is perfectly created by God, where mankind is in perfect relationship with God and all is good and all is well. Genesis 3, we see this catastrophic fall. Adam and Eve completely fall from God's grace as they rebel against his good commands. And then the balance of the rest of the 66 books of the Bible, then see God's redemption, and salvation for humanity being worked out through the rest of the Bible. And if you follow that through, you get to the last two chapters in Revelation and you see everything now has been perfectly restored back to harmony and peace and order where mankind is now reconciled back uh, to God the Father again. That is the grand story of Scripture. That is the one great story that overarches uh, the complete Bible. And the key feature that we need to see ourselves now in is this salvation or redemption story or redemption chapter that we are in with Jesus Christ. And that's exactly how Paul saw it. He saw we are in the middle of this redemption chapter, this sort of main portion of the Bible, telling us about this redemption here that Jesus brings for us. And we see the first mention of the gospel here nearly immediately after the fall. Immediately after the fall in Genesis 3.15. It says here, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You so might say, "What is all that about?" Uh, that is God there uh, cursing um, the serpent that come and deceived thee, which we know to be Satan. And uh, He's saying, "There's an offspring coming with the woman. This offspring will come and defeat your work of sin and death. He will crush your head, Satan." So, He's like the first picture here of the redemption that mankind will, re- will be redeemed. Paul sees it again in Colossians in this uh, fantastic passage here in chapter 1. It says this He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's a grand vision here that Paul gets of the centrality of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So it's a it's a unique passage there where Paul's really focusing in upon Jesus. All those words where you say, see, see he, there, is referring to Jesus. He uses language of preeminent. He's like the foremost of all. He is the central figure of what we follow. This passage gives us an all-consuming passion here that God has for his son, Jesus Christ, to magnify him as the very centre of the gospel here of this uh Salvation chapter that we are in, and he says there that truth we uh, with the truth of reconciling all things to himself. That is that redemption there we see reconciling all things to himself. Luke also uh, records this about Jesus for us as well in Luke twenty four twenty seven, and the, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is absolutely pointing to that the central story of the Bible, the gospel, is all about him. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, the things concerning Jesus. Jesus is walking down the road to Emmaus and these guys haven't recognised who he is. And he begins to open up to them and he says all the Bible is actually pointing to me as the central story here of the gospel of salvation. So it's really important that we see here, as Paul sees, that the Gospel, the salvation message of Jesus Christ, is absolutely central in the Bible. It's not a little side story just tucked away in a few verses here and there. It's from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about the Gospel that is central uh, throughout the Scriptures. Now, for Paul, it wasn't just a matter of knowing that the central message of the Bible is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He gets that, but it's not only that for Paul. He takes it further. He knows it's also about proclaiming this message as well. He knows it's about speaking out this message. He knows it's about communicating this message. It's one thing to know it, but Paul wants to get it out. He wants to proclaim it. He wants to communicate it. Even here in this passage, we see a number of times he talks about this communicating or speaking. In verse 14, he says, speak the word. In verse 15, he says, preach Christ. In verse 17, proclaim Christ. In verse 18, again, proclaim Christ. So there's like four times, no matter a number of verses here, it's communicating, it's speaking, it's sharing. And again, we need to see this is also central uh, through the Bible as it's commanded to us by the Holy Spirit who's inspired the Scriptures for us. The same thing is said again. Luke again records for us, later in that chapter we just read there before, Luke 24. 44 to 47, this is Jesus speaking. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. In his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Again, Jesus is like a double barrel effect there. It's like it's all pointing to me. He opened the scriptures up to say, This is about me. And he said, This is what must be proclaimed. It's repentance uh, and uh, forgiveness of sins. It's something that's communicated, it's something that's spoken out, it's something that is somehow people get it, people understand it. Again, in Acts 4, um, Peter says this. The Apostle, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter's saying there is only one name, and that name needs to be proclaimed. People need to hear about this one name. There is salvation in no other name other than the name of Jesus Christ. Got to be proclaimed. And again, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, another great passage. So Paul is saying again, this is of first importance. This is the central message of the Bible. This is something here that you need to hear. He says there, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. It's something that Paul is proclaiming. It's something that he's communicating. He gets this. Not only do I know it, or I should know it, but I need to proclaim it. I need to communicate this message as well. Paul is very, very passionate about this. He knows that it's the central message of the Bible and he's absolutely keen to see that it's proclaimed as the central message of the Bible. Look at what he says here in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, For necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He feels a good burden. He feels a necessity. It's not a a burden that sort of weighs him down and sort of um, despair, he feels a burden here to proclaim it because he knows it's the message of truth and life. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He wants to proclaim it. And again, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm hoping you're getting it by now, that Paul's really, really keen here about the gospel and proclaiming it. He's got a focus here, he's got a passion here. He wants to speak about Jesus. It's like something has consumed Paul, isn't it? You can just see there's something just nearly sweating out of him, or dripping out of him, or oozing out of him. There's something that's really taken over him, and he's really glad that it has taken over him. Paul wants to proclaim Jesus. And even this passage here that we've just read from Philippians, he's not distracted by some other preachers here who are proclaiming Christ from bad motives. Look at again in verse 15 here of chapter 1 of Philippians. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defence of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now we need to think here what's happening. Paul isn't saying that these ones are are preaching a false gospel here. These ones who are doing it from bad motives. They're not preaching a false gospel. They're preaching the truth as far as Paul's concerned. But unbelievably, unbelievably, the motivation for these guys is somehow to inflict some sort of mental or emotional pain on Paul while he's in prison. They're trying to afflict him with something. They're trying to actually stir him up, but for a jealous reason. Perhaps they're jealous that Paul may have a bigger ministry than I I don't know what the motivation here is. You know, maybe they're jealous of Paul's success that he's travelled the Roman world and he's been to all these cities and he's started all these churches. So for some reason, it's not enough for them that Paul's in prison for the defence of the Gospel. They actually somehow want to rub salt into his wound while he's in there and somehow rival him or rile him or get him angry or something. It's amazing what they've done there. But this doesn't worry Paul. This doesn't worry him. He's not concerned about that. Paul isn't having an identity crisis here in jail, thinking, what's going on? These guys are really kicking goals out there, and I'm stuck here. Why can't I get going again? He's not having an identity crisis like that at all. In fact, Paul responds there in verse 18, which which is just a, a beautiful picture here of his devotion to Jesus Christ and the gospel. And he says there that. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, bad motives, or in the truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, he says. What then? What then, says Paul? So what? Do what you like about me. Say what you like about me. Only that in every way, every possible conceivable way, whether in jealous motives or whether in true love for Christ... Only that in every way Jesus Christ is proclaimed. Paul doesn't care. Do what you like about me. Say what you like about me. I don't really care about me. What I care about is that Jesus Christ is proclaimed. And he is lifted up. Can you sort of feel the warmth of love that Paul has for Christ? And Can you feel this sort of Jesus captivated vision of all things that Paul has? Here he is in a bad way and he says well, what then I don't care what you say about me or what you do as long as Christ is proclaimed see this is what Paul has discovered he's discovered the supreme treasure of this world it drives him, it motivates him, it gives him an unbelievably deep passion here in life ok we could say this then Paul so what? so what? Why should Jesus Christ have the absolute focus of our lives? Why should I, Paul, see Jesus as you do? What's the go, Paul? Well, firstly, everybody has a focus on something. Everybody has a focus. on. Everybody is driven by something. I don't care who you are or what you do. There is something that will drive you or give you a a passion in life. And Paul, as we've just seen, he's driven by Jesus Christ. And likewise, everyone else is driven by something. So you need to ask yourselves, what drives you or what drives me? What's your focus in life? Some people are driven by comfort. They really, really are. They'll they'll have a focus in life of all the decisions they make to sort of make myself more comfortable. That'll be their sort of, you know, underlying sort of driving, perhaps, motivation here. Now, will this decision cause me discomfort and stress? Then I won't do it. You know, not advocating we've got to look for, make decisions look out for it, build discomfort in our lives but some people go out of their way to just make comfort as the main thing in their life some people are driven by success or money some people are everything they do will have a focus on how successful I can be or how much money I can make out of this next venture that becomes their driving force or their driving focus or their driving passion. Some are driven by control. They, just, they need to be in control of a situation. They, don't, they just don't feel good unless they're somehow in control. So they're making decisions, how can I increase my control in this situation? Some are like that. We're all driven by something or some other sort of drive or passion in our lives. And there's nothing wrong with about being driven. It's good to be passionate about something. But the questions we need to ask ourselves is this. Is what I'm driven by going to satisfy or fulfil my deepest longings in this life? Is the passion or is what I'm being driven by going to satisfy or fulfil my deepest longings in life? Is what I'm going to be driven by or is the passion in my life going to have me be eternally secure before God at the end of my life when it's over? Will what drives me Make me eternally secure before God. You see, if we can't answer those questions with complete confidence, with the eternal perspective in Jesus Christ, if we can't get that question answered confidently, then we're probably being driven by a faulty pursuit. The drive or the passion that is motivating us or pushing us or directing us is probably the wrong one. It's not going to stack up when it comes to an eternal perspective. Therefore, you do need to find Christ. You do need to find that focus to get an eternal perspective for what drives you. If you're a Christian, though, what's the driving focus that you or I have? Is it the same focus that drives Paul here, as we see in this passage? Is Jesus at the centre of the gospel that drives you or I? Is he firmly fixed in the middle? Is the gospel, as a, a communicated message, a spoken message, a somehow declared message... Is that a focus that drives us? Let's take the question here of this. Is the gospel a communicated message, a focus that drives us? Is that something for you today as a believer? Is that something that's a focus for you, that you want to communicate Jesus in some way? Now, I'm sure we all agree that the church has a mission. Now we have our mission statement here at Exchange, yeah? connecting people to Jesus and growing people in Jesus. There's a mission there that the church is on. I think we'd all agree with that. But let me ask this question then. Do we see that communicating the message of the gospel is essential in carrying out that mission? Is communicating the message of the gospel, is it essential in carrying out the mission? I say that because over the decades... Of of, uh, past history the commitment to communicating the message of Christ has declined in a general sense it really has in the decades uh, behind us now if you or I went back maybe just a couple of generations perhaps around the second world war I'm not going to ask if anybody was here from the second world war but if you went back a few generations back to around the second world war uh, you would find a relatively strong focus on proclaiming or communicating the message of Jesus Christ you would if you went back and you read, um, say, lots of sermons back around that time, or even got hold of a few recordings of, uh, of um, uh, church life back then, it would be a very strong focus on proclaiming or communicating the message of Jesus Christ back a couple of generations or so back. That message would have been centered on His death for our sins and His resurrection to uh, guarantee us eternal life. It would have been a message of repentance from sin and faith in Christ. A very strong proclamation or communication of the message of Jesus Christ but but over the last 60 or 80 years there's been a softening or a drifting away from this central gospel message in a general sense Now, over the last two generations there's been just a, a, a drawing back from this proclaiming uh, Christ and him crucified now I won't go into a, a detailed explanation for why this has happened other than just, just say maybe a couple of things some people have thought that as culture has moved on in life, like culture's developed and gone in sort of leaps and bands in technological ways, they felt the message of Christ crucified is just not relevant perhaps for the culture anymore. So some of them have sort of just drawn away from communicating because it's not a relevant message. Others have felt that the message was just too harsh. The idea of God's judgment and the idea of death on the cross and the idea of payment for our sins uh, through Christ's death, just that sounded too harsh. Others just saw the results of the message of the pure gospel, if you want to call it that, We're just poor. We were promoting the pure gospel, we just didn't get any decisions. So for any number of reasons like that, they begin to soften and draw back away from communicating this truth. That's what happened. Very well-meaning Christians have allowed then the focus to then drift away from the proclaiming of the gospel as a central focus of Jesus Christ. And let it drift away, perhaps, to promote good works for others, to show the love of Christ. It's come away from proclaiming Jesus more to doing more good works to show the love of Christ. And they've allowed the message to, as it were, slip off the radar. Everybody loves good works. Everybody does love good works. There's no question about that. But not everybody loves to hear the gospel. It's very obvious for Paul. That's why he's in prison. He was in prison for the defence of the gospel. He was out there proclaiming it and some people didn't like it. And uh, hence, he's in prison. Now, don't get me wrong about good works. Good works is a very, very good thing to do. It's essential that uh, as believers we are active in carrying out good works. Uh, We should be the most dedicated people of all the community in helping others who are in need. Christians should be really, really noted for their good works. But... But if we leave our faith in just doing good works alone and not communicating the gospel, well, then we aren't carrying out fully the mission of Jesus Christ. If it's just good works alone to demonstrate the love of Christ but not going on to the next step of communicating Jesus, proclaiming the message, well, then we aren't fully carrying out the message of uh, Jesus Christ and proclaiming it. What I mean by that is this. If we are just kind to our neighbours, like we put out the bins when they're away on holidays or away for the weekend, or we go and bake them a cake because they're feeling unwell or we just want to cook some food for them, if that's all we ever do, if that's all we ever do, and not look for an opportunity to share Jesus with them, well, then we aren't truly, fully carrying out the message of the gospel. And if that's the case, then we don't have the same focus here that Paul has and the same passion here that Paul has and demonstrates for us in Philippians. Now, let me qualify that a little bit because you might be getting a bit worried there. To get Jesus up in a conversation isn't always easy. In fact, most times it's pretty hard. It's not like you're having a conversation with somebody. And all of a sudden this red flag pops up. This is your cue now to start talking about Jesus because your friends offensive now the red flag's up, now you can talk about Jesus with me. That doesn't generally happen in a conversation over the garden fence or over the counter or wherever. It's not easy to get Jesus up in a conversation. So I wholeheartedly encourage taking out the bins for your neighbour. I wholeheartedly encourage cooking them a great cake or cooking them meals when they're unwell. We should do all those things. We should be doing those things to build a good relationship with our neighbours or our friends, wherever they may be. But then but then we must intentionally work really, really hard and pray for an opportunity to share Jesus with them, to go to the next level. Now, having said that, you might say, look, I do bring up Jesus in a conversation, and sadly, sometimes it just falls flat. I barely get his name out. I might say one sentence about him and it just... Goes nowhere, and I get very discouraged. Yeah, I get that. It's the same experience for myself as well. But I would say, there, well done. You've tried. You've had a go. We've actually tried to go that next level and actually get the conversation up about Jesus to proclaim Him. And this is one of the reasons we're lifting the tempo here in prayer at the church because we know how difficult it is. If you're out there and you've tried to do that over the fence or over the counter, you know sometimes that conversation just goes nowhere. It just falls flat. So that's why we're praying that God's Spirit will go out and prepare hearts, give us courage and boldness and love, and then prepare the hearts to receive that truth so they can hear about Jesus. Sometimes, though, the conversation may go in another direction. It may, it actually, it might go to another level and get a bit deeper where someone has been, their hearts be prayed on by the Holy Spirit, and you actually can begin to talk more about Jesus with them. Praise God for that. But that's where we need to be, as Paul is intentionally looking for that those relationships to uh, seek an opportunity as we build them, to seek an opportunity to actually go to the next level and talk about Jesus. Now, you might struggle with that. We offer plenty of things here. I mean, we have periodic times for the year where we actually have a, a, a more focused service we can bring friends along to. We can give you some stuff to help you as well, to help share that. But at the end of the day, we need to trust in God's spirit working within us to give us courage and boldness to have the same passion that Paul has here, the same central focus, to not only know Christ as the central message of the Bible, but to proclaim him as well, to go to that next level. Now, I'm convinced that these sort of questions here, like, is Jesus the central focus of our lives and is is this desire to proclaim him strongly committed within us? These sort of questions will set the course of our lives. They really will. If they become the drive and the passion, they will set the course of our lives. How we answer those questions will very much dictate how we live. Will be Obviously, if we're looking to talk about Jesus, we'll be looking for opportunities all the time. So how we answer those questions is really, really important. Let me just finish here with this uh, this quote from Don Carson as he uh, made a comment about this passage here in Philippians. And uh, Don Carson says this, Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the centre of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendour of the gospel. As Christians, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very centre of our aspirations. Right smack bang in the middle of how we live is where the gospel must be. Don Carson goes on to say, What are your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To travel? To see your grandchildren grow up? To find a new job? To retire early? None of these is inadmissible None is to be despised. The question is whether these aspirations, grandchildren, money, retirement, marriage, the question is whether these aspirations become so devouring, so consuming, so all-encompassing, that the Christian's central aspiration, which is the gospel, is squeezed out to the very edge of our life. It becomes just a very tiny little small issue on the side and choked out of existence entirely. I think Don Carson's got it right there. We have lots of things in our life that are vying for this drive and this passion. And if we don't consciously make Jesus Christ, as Paul has proclaimed to us in this passage here, the central passion, the central focus of our lives, all these other things, which they're not wrong, they're good things, they begin to just move to the centre of our life and they take over. I can guarantee you that if you make Jesus the centre of your life, if you make the Gospel the passion of your life, then all of life's issues will find their right perspective. Paul demonstrates that for us right here. Where is he where he writes this? He's in a prison. He's chained to a guard 24 hours a day. With this passion of Jesus Christ, he gets this focus. And he says uh, in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way... While he's chained to these guards, 24 hours a day, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And what's he say then? And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. In this ridiculously difficult place of a prison, here is Paul rejoicing that Jesus can be proclaimed. See, that's what happens when you get the gospel right in the middle. It aligns your right perspective on the rest of life. There's this overflowing passion here for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you again today as we uh, just come around uh, the book of Philippians. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the work that you did in the Apostle Paul. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the um, incredible passion and drive that you placed within Paul that he Fueled that by thinking and meditating and reflecting upon who Christ is and then lived it out as an as a authentic gospel witness in his life. Lord, even in the middle of a Roman prison, he's rejoicing with Jesus firmly fixed in the middle. Uh, Father, today I pray, Holy Spirit today, I pray that you would come and you would help us to realign this same passion, this same focus, this same drive in our lives as well. That Lord, you would give us this centrality of Jesus Christ right in the middle of our lives so that we would get a right focus on everything else. Lord, guard us against all of these other outside drives or outside passions that would try to come in and encroach upon our lives and try and take the central place of our lives. Help us to fiercely guard against that, I pray, and to get the right balance with Jesus perfectly in the middle and these other passions and drives finding their position underneath Christ, I pray. Lord, today, please help us with that. Please help us, Lord. It is so, so easy in many respects to do good works and to bake a cake and to bring the bins out and to help our friends and neighbours, and they are terrifically good things to do. But it seems so, so hard, Lord, to bring up and to proclaim Jesus. Lord, we want to be a church that is absolutely passionate, not only knowing about Jesus, but also proclaiming Jesus. So please, Holy Spirit, give us the courage and boldness today to do that. And when the discouragement comes or the the conversation is shut down, help us to get over the despair and the discouragement, to pray for our friends or neighbours, and Lord, to again look and seek for another opportunity. Father, let that passion grow within your people, within all of us today, I pray. And uh, Lord, I do ask and I do pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we wrap up and uh, hand back to... um,